So we're just like really small mini collection called I Do. We're just talking about marriage and we're just talking about God's heart and design. You know, one thing I want to reiterate from last week, singleness is not a deficiency. Marriage is not the number one, the best thing that you could experience. It's beautiful, but God forms us in so many ways and love is experienced in so many ways. Marriage is just one of those ways. But I would bet, you know, just talking to some of our church members, many of you do have a heart to and plan to want to get married some point in the future. And so we thought it would be a great series to dive into as we talk about marriage and talk about covenant love. Last week, we talked about marriage as three things. Marriage as a fireplace, a a place, a context where you cultivate intimacy for one another. Marriage as a mirror. Um, You get to see your best and your worst self in your partner. And you get to grow up. And then marriage as a storybook. Our love is meant to tell a greater story of the gospel of Jesus coming for his beloved. Well, today we're going to continue that and talk about three more things that marriage is. And then uh, we're going to have an extended time of worship after that. Y'all excited? Cool. Let's dive in. Number one, uh, marriage is an altar. Marriage doesn't just take place at an altar. It becomes an altar. It's not just something you go up to to say your vows and and pledge yourself to each other and say I do. The marriage, the context of your relationship itself becomes an altar. What is an altar? An altar is a place where sacrifice is made. In marriage, I love this simple mathematical equation. Marriage is one plus one equals one. The mystery of marriage is that two people approach the altar but one walks away. And I don't mean it in some sort of like Hunger Games context, like two people come up and one person kills the other and walks. No, two people come to the altar, but the mystery of that marriage is that one walks away. Two become one flesh. Marriage is an altar where each person as an individual is offered as a sacrifice for the love of the other. In other words, me living for myself Trying to get my own way, bending toward my preferences, doing things for my benefit is now sacrificed at the altar. Me thinking about only my goals, taking care of my own needs, living off of my own strength is sacrificed at the altar. There is no more me without you. Now, it doesn't mean we give up like our sense of self I should have a healthy sense of identity, confident in who God has created me to be. But what it simply means is that the days of me living for myself and myself alone are finally over. Now I live also for this person that I pledge myself to. I mentioned in that New York York Times article last week that what they said about marriage is that marriage used to be about us about the good and the benefit of the two. But now, over time, marriage has become more about me. Sociologists, they actually argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace and like capitalism have become so prominent and so dominant that they've actually fundamentally altered the nature of our relationships. And what do I mean? Relationships like marriage used to be characterized by covenant, right? A deep commitment that we offer to one another is marked by self-sacrificial love. I love you because I promise I will love you. I won't leave you because I promise I will be with you in highs and lows through thick and thin. But now, 
Relationships have become characterized by commodification based on a consumer model, meaning that they become more and more transactional, right? We stay connected to people only as long as they're meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. And when we cease to make a profit in that relationship, or when the relationship appears to require more love and attention from us than we're getting back, what do you do? We cut our losses and we drop the relationship. And so we leave friendships, we leave relationships, we leave communities, churches, cities, jobs, as soon as they become no longer useful to us. We have commodified relationships. We cut our losses and move on when we feel like what we're giving isn't worth what we're receiving. In other words, the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture, yet covenant is the very essence of marriage. I have a really, really long quote from the great C.S. Lewis. It's really long. It's like the longest quote I've ever quoted. But if you would pay attention and really listen to the words of this great, you will be blessed. I'm going to read it real quick. Oh, no, 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 wait, I'm so sorry. I'm not at the quote yet. We're going to go to a very controversial Bible passage instead. Ephesians 5, 21 through 28. (laughs) Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her at to himself as a radiant church without strain, stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. First of all, let's address the elephant in the room. We have to understand with passages like this, Paul is writing to a particular group at a particular time in a particular context. Obviously, Paul was writing in a very male-dominated patriarchal society. So we have to get that clear. There was no grid or no framework for anything else. And so rather than getting caught up in the semantics of gender roles and what a husband or a wife is supposed to do or if there's anything beyond that, I think it's more helpful to get to the heart of what Paul is actually saying here. What's he saying? I love that so many people argue, wives, you got to submit to your husband. Or like, husbands, you got to give up your life for your wife. But the first line of this is actually a call to mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Love each other just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ express his love for us? He laid down his life. He gave it up for the ones he loved. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for his beloved. And so what I'm driving at here is these calls aren't exclusive to one spouse. These calls aren't exclusive to one gender. It's, that, it's not that only a woman is supposed to submit and only a man is supposed to sacrifice. It's a call to mutual submission, a call to mutual 
mutual sacrifice, a call for both people to lay down their lives in love for one another. In my marriage, there are times where I submit to Krista and there are times where Krista submits to me. There are times where I give up my wants so that Krista could get what she wants and vice versa. There is a mutual giving up in the moments we're together in relationship. See, in marriage, there's a kind of happiness that you can only experience when you learn to put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own. And for those not married, there's a kind of happiness that you can only experience when you put the needs of someone you love ahead of your very own. It's a deep kind of happiness, a happiness through serving others instead of using them, a joy that comes from giving instead of receiving, loving another person in a costly way. One of my favorite definitions of love is love is inconveniencing myself for the sake of the other. See, when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you're willing to give yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest? And this is the difference between love and lust. Lust is about seeking pleasure for myself. Love is about giving for the sake of the other. And I think there is a big difference when we base a relationship on love or on lust. How beautiful, just imagine with me, how beautiful would it be if two people moved toward one another in self-sacrificing love? If marriage became an altar, not where we come to fight for our own needs, our own desires, our own happiness, but it became a place where we both fight for the other to win, where we both fight for the other person to receive, for the other person to be blessed. That is marriage as an altar. How this played out in Krista and my relationship, um, people ask me all the time, Mickey, how did you know that you wanted to marry Krista? And I tell them, there was a season in our relationship, in our one year of dating. It wasn't very long, but, you know, we were pastors. We were ready. We just knew. But there was a season when we were dating where Krista, like, just fell into this really deep funk. And, like, for me, one of my biggest dreams was, like, I know, don't laugh at me. It's, like, really Christian and nerdy, but I was, like, I can't wait to do ministry with my wife. Like, I can't wait to, like, lead prayer meetings together and, like, worship. Like, for me, that was a dream that I held in my heart for my future wife. And so when I got together with Krista, that was something I was so excited for. But then when we started dating, like, something really strange happened, and Krista just kind of fell into this funk where, like, she didn't even, like, want to show up at church anymore. And she was depressed, and she didn't want to pursue God. And, and, and the question that that I was confronted with because I was ready to propose to her after one week. I know, I know, I'm like an eager beaver, but I just knew. We were friends for eight years before that, okay? Don't judge me. But I just knew, like, I wanted to marry this woman. But then everything on the outside was like, oh, but, like, I don't even know if she'll, like, even want to go to church, let alone want to do ministry. And the question I was confronted with was this, Mickey, are you willing to love her even if your dreams don't come to pass? Even if she isn't the person that you in your heart want her to be, are you willing to love her for the rest of your life? And it's okay if you're not, but are you? Because that's the question that you need to answer if you're thinking about marriage. 
And as I prayed, I came to a conclusion. I want to love Krista for the rest of my life, even if we don't fulfill our dream of doing ministry together, even if it's just me going to church every week and she's at home watching on the live stream. Like, I'm willing to give these things up because I want to spend the rest of my life loving her. It was almost a form of sacrifice. And it's crazy. As soon as I made that decision, like, God brought her out of that funk. It was such a strange season. And so in that season, I was willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the other. Fast forward now, you know, we just had our baby. And can I tell you something? Mothers will never understand how much mothers sacrifice, not just for their families, but for every area of their lives. And it really hit me because we had community group this last Wednesday. And for some reason, our community group has all the married folks. So it was really cool. Um, And Jerry. Jerry, just getting that marriage anointing, man. (laughs) Just just blessed, just sitting under that. And it didn't really hit me until Krista was like, you know, I actually haven't been in community group for a year and a half. And, you know, like I... She luckily, like, she offered me the space to go and be part of community group while she stayed and, you know, put Zion to bed for, like, a year. But at that moment, it hit me. She sacrificed so much for me. See, marriage becomes an altar where we sacrifice our pursuit of self for the benefit of the other. And no benefit or gain to us. And the beautiful thing is when it works, when two people are willing to do that for one another, and it's not like, I got to fight for my space, I got to fight for my needs, That is the beauty, beautiful image of covenant love that God wants us to tap into in the context of marriage. And so marriage, number one, is an altar. Number two, marriage is a workbench. What is a workbench? We have no idea because we're not handy this day and age. But a workbench, as Fatai will tell you, is a flat table or surface where manual labor is done. Whether it's building something or fixing a piece of furniture or sanding the edges of a rough surface, a workbench represents a place where you intentionally work on something. Can I tell you something that might um, turn you off to getting married for the rest of your life? The work and relationship never ends. I used to think, oh, man, if we just fall in love and, like, we work really hard in the beginning, we could just coast for the rest of our lives. No. The work of relationship never ends. This is true in our marriages. It's true in our friendships. It's true in our families. We never graduate from work, from effort, from intentionality in our relationships. In fact, the moment most relationships die is when we stop putting in the work. Cue the C.S. Lewis quote, the really long one. This is a sermon. Just imagine C.S. Lewis is here. Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also many things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last, but feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. I'm so sorry. If the, if the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever would be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. 
Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other. As you love yourself, even when you do not like yourself, they can retain this love even when each would easily if they allowed themselves be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. Ooh, isn't that good? Uh, one of my favorite songs by Pat Barrett is called Sales. And uh, the first line of the song is, Falling is easy, but staying in love is hard. It's so true. Falling in love is easy. Anyone can fall in love. Like hormonal teenagers, they glance at each other for a split second and they fall in love. Like I know we got some Y-whammers in the house. Y-whammers, they, they just look someone across the room, someone's lifting their hands, fall in love, right? We used to have this running joke in like I, I led so many overseas mission trips that <laughs> uh, – sorry, that, that really hit deep for some of you, okay? Like I led so many mission trips and never underestimate the power of a mission trip to get young Christians to fall in love with each other. Every single trip. I even fell in love with so many people on mission trip. It just happens. Anyone can fall in love. Literally anyone can fall in love, but it takes work to stay in love. You know, I'm not impressed anymore by people who get married and like, you know, post on it on Instagram and like have all these cool quotes about love out of context. I'm impressed by people who have been married for like 10 years for like 20 years. And if you've been married even for a year, you know, if you get to like 30 years, that is literally a supernatural move of the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm not kidding. It takes that much work. Like y'all could keep your fancy Instagram posts and grandiose expressions of affection. I want the kind of love that people who have been married 30, 40, 50, 60 years, that kind of love. C.S. Lewis says it's a quiet love. It's not one that needs to boast or scream out loud. It's a love that's not as flashy or as sexy as the spark that ignited that love. It's a quieter love that's constant and steadfast. A quieter love that's subtle but powerful. A love that goes beyond feelings. A love that sticks it out through every storm and never stops inching forward. In any relationship, there will be times where your feelings of love dry up. But during those times, we have to remember that the essence of marriage is not feeling, but covenant and commitment. In Revelation 2, 4 to 5, God is speaking against the church, specifically in Ephesus. And he says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. In this passage, God is confronting the church of Ephesus saying, you lost your first love. You lost the passion, the fire that you once had. Your heart doesn't beat for me the way that it used to. You don't have those butterflies anymore when you come into my presence. You have to recapture that first love. But how? Do the things that you did at first. 
When you do the acts of love, despite your lack of feeling, as time goes on, you not only get through the dry spells, but they become less and less frequent. When you begin doing the things you once did, that fire of love reignites. Chris and I, um, when we were uh, dating, we were like, you know, there's those couples. It's just like so gross and disgusting. Like, like always gushing about that. Like that was us. And like, we just could not, there'll be moments we're walking together on a date and sorry, this might sound a little crazy and aggressive, but like, I would just like need to scream because that's, I had so much love pent up in me for Krista. So we'd just be walking be like, ah, like it scared the hell out of her. But I just need like, that's how much we just loved each other. And I remember during that dating period, we'd do so many little things like hide little notes in each other's room when we were there or like hide something in each other's bag, a little flower, like a little chocolate or candy or a little note. And, you know, over time, like you kind of stop doing those things. Or is it just us, right? Married couples, like you become a little less intentional about it. But what we find is when we start to will ourselves to do the things we once did, we, we find ourselves being reignited with that love and that passion. Case in point, this might also be TMI, but like um, sometimes like when I floss in my shower, I'll leave a little floss symbol of heart for Krista. And like, it's just like a little thing, right? And like... She doesn't even, so she, she showers after me and she doesn't mention it at all. Like we just go to sleep that night. I forgot about it by then. Next day when I go into shower, like it's no longer a heart. She somehow wrote in cursive, I love you with it. Like it's, it's like truly a gift. And like those little acts that we once did like reignite. I know it sounds silly and stupid, but like those little things that we once did that, that showed I'm thinking about you that you're on my mind, that I care about you, even if it's with dirty-ass floss. Like, we, we do those things, and it reignites that first love. You know, that's why our, on our Sabbaths, when my parents come to watch Zion every Monday um, at 3 p.m., uh, we don't go just to hang out or just to relax or rest. We go out on a date every Monday. Why? Because we know that we have to do the things that we did at first to keep this love alive. See, most people think that when the feelings of love in a relationship start to dwindle, there's something wrong. And like, I need to find someone else that makes me feel that way. Newsflash, whoever you commit your life to, you will, that, those feelings of love will eventually dry up. But it's not a sign that your love is dying. It's an invitation for the real act of love, act of love to begin. Those feelings of love are just the surface of a deeper love that we're called to excavate. And so hear me, church. Compatibility is overrated. I'm going to read another really long quote by Stanley Hauerwas, who's a professor of ethics at Duke University. And he famously made this point. He said, destructive to marriage is a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, 
being the enormous thing it is means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. What's he really saying here? Saying we always marry the wrong person. There is no, all right, this might be a hot take. There's no such thing as the one. I'm going to just let you in on a secret. There's no such thing as the one. And the sooner we realize this, the more heartbreak it'll save us. What you find in marriage is that over the years, you go through seasons where you have to learn to love a person you didn't marry, who's almost like a stranger. It's like, I didn't realize how messy he is. I didn't realize how much alone time she needed. I didn't know how mean he could get when we would fight. I had no idea that she snores like that, right? Who is this person that I married? They tricked me. Marriage is trickery, y'all. We marry someone and we realize I never even really knew you at all, yo. Like we are always going to marry the wrong person. Compatibility should be an achievement, not a prerequisite. Compatibility is overrated. It's not unimportant, but it's not the most important thing. See, I'm of the firm belief that there is no magical the one that God has destined for you. I know this might break some of your paradigms, but I don't believe there is a perfect person that God has set aside for you that you're going to be instantly compatible with. Perfect. Two pieces of the puzzle that fit together. Sometimes and we over-spiritualize things and we make things so weird when we use language like the one. Like we go up to someone and say, God told me you're the one. Like what's someone supposed to say to that? It's weird, guys. It's harmful, I think, and sometimes too. Don't do that. I believe that the one is simply the one you choose. That is the person you choose to love becomes the one. Have you seen the matrix? Do you know Neo, right? Everyone's like, this guy is destined to be the one. He is the one that's going to save us from the machines. He's going to lead the human uprising. He's going to be the one that saves us and set things right. But guess what? He wasn't the one. Do you know that? If you watch the first matrix, Neo was not the one. Neo only became the one when Trinity chose him. Neo became the one when Trinity chose to love Neo. I could do a whole sermon series about this. All that to say, I don't believe there is one magical, mystical one out there for you that like fits perfectly into who you are. I do believe that God knows what's going to happen and who we may choose. But I believe the one is the person that you choose to love. The one is the person you choose to commit the rest of your life to. The one is the person you put in the work with to create a lasting love. So I think we need to do a lot less praying. God, show me who is the one and take more responsibility for our lives and say, this is the person I want to love for the rest of my life. And when I choose them, they become the one. The journey may eventually take you into strong, tender, joyful marriage, but it's not because you married the perfectly compatible person. That person does not exist. It's because you were both willing to put in the work to make a marriage that lasts. My man, John Mark Comer, JMC, he once said, don't get married because you think he or she is the one. Trust me, they're not. There's no such thing. But do get married when you see who God is making somebody to be and it lights you up. Marriage is a workbench. And so marriage is an altar. Marriage is a workbench. Last one, marriage is a table. A good marriage is a big table loaded with lots of food, 
and drink. When two people love each other, that love becomes a, a place of hospitality, a table where people come to be fed, both literally and figuratively. A true love in marriage feeds not just the two people in love, but everyone in its orbit. It becomes a force that pulls people in and not shuts people out. One of the biggest pitfalls I see when people get into serious relationships is when they silo themselves off from people, right? Like dove's eyes. I only have eyes for you. Nothing else matters. Nothing else exists in my world. And they get so caught up in their own little world that they forget that their love is not only meant to be a blessing to them, but a blessing to the world. One of the most important signs that I look for when assessing the health of a couple is asking myself, is their love feeding just themselves or is their love feeding the people around them? And come on, you know couples that like their love is just feeding themselves. But you can also think of those couples, their love feeds so many people. It draws people into their orbit. Is their love a blessing to the communities they're a part of? Is their love nurturing to the circle of friends? Is their love a healing bomb to the people they come across? In the ancient world, when a couple got married and they created a home together, they would always make space for an extra room. And they made space for an extra room in case a stranger was rolling through town and they needed a place to stay for the night. They had an extra room in case a refugee needed shelter or in case a neighbor needed help. There was this understanding that their love was not just their own. It was something meant to be shared, something that people are invited into. There was a responsibility of hospitality in the covenant of marriage. And this is why I love, like, we have married couples and we have singles in the same community groups. And I love that. Why? Because... One of, um, one of my favorite experiences in community groups, I was part of a community group back at my old church, and it was full of a few married couples, and then there were a few single people. And there was one single person in that group who just happened to be um, a lot older than I was. Let's just put it that way. And one time, that, that single person, they were sharing in the group one night, and they said, you know, oh, beautiful. That's weird. What is that? That's so strange. God is, God was creating a moment there and I just quenched it. <laughs> I just quenched it, y'all. I'm, so, I'm sorry, God. In that group, one time, the single person who happened to be older, they said to the group and they shared with the group, they were bearing their heart. They said, you know, this is my family. Like, I don't really have anyone else, but I'm so thankful that I have you all. Marriage makes room at the table. It says you can come. And you can find shelter here. You can come and you can be fed. You can come and you can belong. You know who does this really well in our church? John and Soph. Just shouting you guys out. If you guys know John and Soph, this beautiful couple right here. I just, yeah, y'all know. I feel like you guys are so good at this. Like John and Soph are always inviting people over for dinner, always inviting people to hang out. When you're around them, it doesn't feel like you're just observing their love story. It feels like I'm invited into that. And I could feel that love too. And they're just so intentional about creating their home and creating their relationship to be a table where people can come and be fed and be blessed. Right? Our homes need to be open because our hearts are open and our hearts open because we remember God's heart is open to us. I'm going to share one last passage and I don't think it's up there. It's in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. 
talking about the end times. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. This is the part I want to call attention to. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. The end of the story is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a giant table spread with food and with wine and with blessing. And it's an open table for all who want to come to come and feast. This is the invitation God offers us. And it's the same invitation we are called to extend to others with our homes, with our resources, our time, and our effort. Marriage is an altar. Marriage is a workbench. And marriage is a table. So whether you're married or single or dating or engaged, this is the love that God invites us into. A love that sacrifices. A love that puts in work. And a love that welcomes others in. Why don't we invite up the worship team? Why don't we close our eyes and we'll, we'll conclude in prayer. I actually, I didn't plan this, but uh, we are going into an extended time of worship, which really means we're not going to do one song. We're going to do two songs, okay? <laughs> and it wasn't because Paul at the keyboard messed up. I promise. It's, this is planned, okay? But I really do believe that today, more than just a, uh, a love relationship in the context of marriage, God is teaching us about his love for us. A love that gave life. A love that sacrificed for us. A love that worked to reach us. A love that invited us in. So right now, why don't we close our eyes? There are three things I want to invite you into pondering in prayer. The first, love as an altar. Today, God, we remember that love paid a cost. Love cost your life. And for us to enter into that love, it required a sacrifice. Right now, God, would you speak to us in ways that you have called us to lay down our lives for the ones you love and for the ones we love? Right now, I want you to pray and I want you to think, is there anyone in my life? It could be my spouse, could be the person I'm dating, could be a friend, could be my family member. Is there anyone that God is challenging you to lay your life down for? where you can give up your preferences, give up your needs, give up your wants and desires for the sake of them? I want you to imagine you are at an altar and you're lifting up your life as a sacrifice to love the other person. God, would you bless that person that's on our minds? Would you bless that person that's on our hearts? Second, is there any relationship that you're in where you've kind of stopped putting in the work? Is there any relationship where you've kind of just grown stagnant? That God is challenging you right now to say, I need to, I want to do more. 
Right now, I want you to think about whatever that relationship is and what God is calling you to do, what work he's called you to put in so that you could cultivate a beautiful love. And last, I believe that God is challenging us to expand the borders of our hearts. Is there anyone that God is putting on your heart to welcome in? Whether you're married or not, is there anyone in the orbit of your life, in the orbit of your love story with God, that God is calling you to extend an invite into, to say, hey, you can come into this space. You can have my time. You can take up valuable real estate on my mind and my heart. You can come in, whether it's me feeding you or me spending time with you. What's one way that you could let someone on the outside in? God, teach us about this love, this covenant love that's so beautifully expressed in marriage, but so much more. We want to love like you do.